cultures up there like there, there's the sami culture if i if i said that right and you were going to bring in some animism for this tell me how that looks for northern norway i mean i don't really know how animism works there uh well in the sami culture there is this belief that absolutely everything has a soul the rock on the beach every grain of sand every single entity in nature has a soul and there's also this idea that a family consists of two parts. There's the physical presence and also like the soul presence. The family has a, has a soul. Yeah, because you have uh, ancestry worship is a big part of like Sami spirituality. Well, I, I say it like it's a current thing. Yes, there is a revivalist movement, but the Sami were converted to Christianity with a rather considerable amount of violence. So at this point, that part of Norway is one of the more devout parts of Norway. It's like mm. the Sami and the South. That's like the Christian belt in Norway. Right, right. And so, so your campaign obviously is taking place well before that Christianization effort. Yes. So the campaign is taking place in, uh, we're starting off in 1020. And there is a battle that takes place in 1030, which is considered a turning point in Norwegian history. Now, historians argue that it actually wasn't that big of a deal. But for our purposes, uh, for the campaign purposes, that's like the turning point. My, my party's mission is sort of to tie their lot to one of the sides, either the southern Christian side or the northern, we just want to be free to do our own thing side. And there was, at the time, a rather large conflict between the southern chieftains and the northern chieftains. So can you talk a little bit, I mean, what, what factions are we talking about here? I mean, like, I, I've got a little bit of knowledge of, of Norwegian history, you know, I, I know of Harold Fairhair and... and I, I know of the conflicts that went on there. I know a little bit about the conflicts with Iceland, but so so what are we talking about here? Well, um, the Battle of Stiklestad, which is the battle that takes place in 1030. In this battle, Olaf II uh, was killed, which leads to Harald Haroda to take up the crown. He was killed by one of the northern chieftains. Olaf was killed by one of the northern chieftains. Was Olaf also... Swedish. He traveled to Sweden, but um, okay. but yeah, no, he he wasn't Swedish as such. There was an army there: Horek uh, of Schotta, uh, Torehun, and Karl Arnason. Schotta is quite close to here, and Torehun is from Björke, which is by northern Norwegian standards a stone throw away. The events there led to Olaf later becoming a saint in the Catholic faith. That's kind of the hook that I'm pinning a lot of the, the content of my campaign on. And in the north, there was extensive trade and coexistence between the Vikings and the Sami population. 
a peaceful coexistence. So I am letting the, the Sami have the, the animism part where I'm giving the, the Vikings the folk magic part. And we don't care about the South because they, they were Christian already. So, so they get like the miracles and stuff. Right, right. And then they're not, are they not, are they not super in the, they're not really in the scope of the campaign for the time being or? No, for the time being, they're off there. We're starting with uh, my party being quite young. The preliminary scope of the campaign is this area in northern Norway. I would say ranging from Brennøysen to Finnmark. And Brennøysen is pretty much in the middle of Nordland, which is second northernmost county. But it's like super long, Hmm. pretty close to Trondheim. And it's, uh, the location of this is is very very far north. Your idea is to set this in a in a real place, in a in a real geographical location, and that was also significant historically. Yes, um, and I'm also setting it where I live and where I grew up and where I have spent most of my life. So it's a location I'm right. very familiar with. Just to give an idea of how far north this is. It's very, very far north of what most people <laughs> might think. Because when I had a look on the map where it was and then tried to... I can see it on the map and I, I can see the Arctic Circle and compared it with certainly North America. It's in the same part where the, the furthest northern part of Alaska is so beyond what you might think of northern Alaska. It's almost off the northern tip of Alaska. And it's actually roughly the same latitude as King William Island in Canada, if that means anything to anyone. Uh, yeah, you were, you were saying what it's around, 69 north, is that right? Yes. As it was, so that, that actually puts it north of Iceland and about oh. the same latitude as, as Svalbard, if I remember right. Yeah. No, it, it, it's not far away. Uh, in fact, the only place you can fly to Svalbard from is Tromsø. But we do have a couple of natural advantages that makes northern Norway habitable, mainly the Gulf Stream. If it wasn't for the Gulf Stream, we would be an Arctic wasteland. And so what, is it, what does it look like there with, with, with the Gulf Stream? Well, uh, right now we have entered fall. Uh, the leaves are turning yellow, still early days. There is a bountiful harvest of berries of various kinds, and soon the potatoes will come up. Of course, we didn't have them in the Viking era. In the Viking era, it was actually between two to four degrees warmer than it is today. Really? It, yes. According to historians this or archaeologists. I, I believe it. The one thing that is difficult here is corn like you can't grow corn here people would grow barley and stuff like that but corn no especially wheat so these things had to be imported from the southern parts which was made difficult because the current king of norway banned northern norway from getting wheat there was a blockade which of course was one of the reasons why there was tension between the north and the south was this before the 1030 Yes. Battle. Okay. It was one of the events leading up to the battle. Ah. Because uh, one of uh, the king's, God, I, I don't know the word in English, but one of his uh, trusted officials. What's the word in Norwegian? Lodman. It's uh, like a taxation officer. Okay. He stopped a boat with the nephew of one of these uh, northern Norwegian chieftains to confiscate his corn. And then he also took his sail. And the sail was like a huge deal. It was like spitting in his face. 
such a breach of just honor and everything. The sale is a pretty big deal in terms of resources. Yes. Right. Like it was, it took, it took, you know, however many people, however long to do that. I mean, by hand, it's not like they're manufacturing them on machines or anything like that. So the sail um, would be made of wool? It's yes. a woven woolen sail. It would be a very expensive item. And to have it taken away and then replaced by something shoddy just so they could get back home was kind of, a, I don't know if I can curse on this, but I'll, I'll do it. Uh, I'm pretty sure that I've cursed at least a few times. Yeah, it was a massive fuck you. Like, there are various theories about this, but a lot of people felt like that led to a sharp increase in hostility. Right. And it's just a very interesting time in Norwegian history. Yeah, but, I mean, it also, it overlaps with, at least with Harold Hadrada, who must leave at some point. Yeah, he goes to Britain and just sets shit on fire. He... <laughs> Well, he le- like he goes to Constantinople, and then you know he dies. He dies in Northern England, which is at the same time as the Norman Conquest. And of course, the Normans are also from Norway or from the north, anyway. Yes, um, and I'd like I'm fairly certain that my players are planning to to go on some kind of holy war with right. re- the rest of Europe to okay. convert everyone to to the one true faith, right. being. Thor and Odin. Um. <laughs> Have you heard the word of Thor? Go to go, uh, you know, village to village preaching. I mean, that's the thing about in terms of beliefs is that this wasn't something that was particularly exported. Go like, ahead. I think part of that is because it wasn't so much a cohesive thing. Mm. Like um, Christianity, at the, well, at this point, Catholicism is quite rigid with how to worship, quite uniform, and everyone would worship in the same way. Everyone would know all the same things about. But Scandinavia, well, it's not Rome. Because of just the geography, like you have villages that are pretty much right next to each other, but they never talk, and their dialect is completely different because there's hardly any interaction because of huge mountains and fjords. Like, Mm. it just was seriously impractical to go say hi to your neighbors. So various rites of religion tended not to be very uniform. There wasn't a uniform way of worship. Even if they were to export their religion, like, two months later, another Norwegian would come and be like, well, that's not the right way to do it. Look. (laughs) So, so I think that's Tromso, that's Tromso Odinism. This is, this is Fronheim Odinism or something, right? It would be... Yes. So it, it wasn't cohesive or uniform in, in the way that Catholicism was. Yeah. And it's it... also a time when the world is changing. Things are becoming more civilized. And then having this one true God... This one true way of doing things probably would have been quite appealing when staying in one place, uh, massive agriculture, the sense that there was order would have been much more appealing than having, you know, 40 gods who all have their own agenda and generally has like their free time is spent just fucking things up. 
So and, and I mean, it probably helps too that that Catholicism ha- has a clergy and a centralized body of authority to kind of keep that that unified message and to keep some unified strategy on their on their evangelizing. Whereas, um, forgive me if I use the wrong words here, but like the the the, Nor- the Norse religions or religion didn't really have so much of that. No, that that's mm-hmm. a very valid point. The people that were sent out to viking if you send someone to pillage and steal your priests generally don't tend to be at the front <laughs> yeah yeah, um, yeah you're, you're the amb- the ambassadors the evangelizers of the faith are really just not good evangelizers there right they're not they're not priests they're they're <laughs> they're warriors exactly and also because in uh like we we should actually uh like use the proper terms here, like the people that were Vikings, they were Norse. And Viking is the verb for the thing that they were doing, yeah. which is basically sending ships out to yeah. uh, discover and also loot. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's similar to calling people the pirates, right? It's, it's, a, it's an occupation more than a, a, more than a culture. So I think there are many reasons and like that, that could be an entirely different podcast discussing Mm. like the rise of Christianity in Europe. But I think there are some very good reasons for why the Norse faith never really became export material. So, so I mean, in your campaign though, they can kind of, they can kind of change that and give this opportunity for, for the, the North, the Norse faith and, and potentially the, the Sami animism to be evangelized, uh, down into Southern Norway, uh, and, and, and to other regions. I mean, actually, maybe talk about that in terms of characters. Like, so we've got some picture of maybe the beliefs and some idea of behavior. What are the character options that maybe there are there in, in your your picture of the setting? They get to choose whether they want to be Sami or Norse. These are the two options available to them. The, the Sami are a nomadic culture. Well, they get to choose if they want to be civilized or uh, barbarians. Because if you were raised for the purpose of going Viking, I will allow you to, to be a barbarian. That's what you were trained in. Since the age of 10, you've probably been on a boat with surrounded by warriors. But if you learned a trade, you would be civilized because then you would have grown up in a village or a homestead. So you split up. You think of uh, the Norse then of that time as both civilized and barbarian in terms of like in, in game terms. Yeah. And so they could be potentially from any one of those careers. Yes. Are you a city, are you a city Viking or are you uh, a ship Viking or city Norse or ship Norse? Yeah. Maybe, um, maybe you would start going Viking at quite an early age to yeah. get that. Although we, at this point in history, consider 18 to be that nice number. At that point, like going Viking from like 10 or 11 summers would be not out of the norm. And at that point, you're spending most of your formative years on a boat with people who are probably much cruder than the people you would have grown up if you grew up in a a village or a city that had stricter enforcement of laws and a much larger um, presence of like rules and regulations because the vikings did have a a quite extensive law system that was uh, quite uniform across the country 
just going back to like the way that you see characters working how does the sami differ in terms of player characters well yes the sami are the only one who can pick animism and it's mainly to like enforce the fact that there there truly are two very different cultures and heritages at work here and i also want to give my players uh multiple options to play with here um it would be different if i was assembling like i would probably be more rigid if i was assembling a group of new players but i'm not like these are players that i've played with for years Mm -hmm. i know what they want and don't want from a game and i know how much rope i can give them before they hang me i mean normally we give out rope so they can hang themselves maybe your players have gotten too smart for you and and so you've got the potential there for like this mixed group how would that work? I mean, you, you say that there was there was quite a lot of cooperation, you know, between the Far Norse and the Sami. Yes. Like, quite a lot of historians feel that the reason why the Sami sort of moved further and further north wasn't that they were chased away. They were simply enveloped into existing communities. And then three generations down the line, it doesn't really matter, like... Like, when you have two cultures that are so different, there obviously will be the occasional bout of tension. But overall, we had a different kind of threat, uh, which was like the the Finnish Ugric tribes that would also come here to raid. So the cooperation between the Sami and the Norse was not just one of benevolence, it was also a mutually beneficial uh, defensive alliance. I see. So that part of Norway is being raided at this time. Yes, by the the Ugric, the Finnish Ugric tribes, who, I mean, now Norway is like very egalitarian, but like even my grandmother would talk about like the descendants of those people as if they were less than. But I yeah. mean, she, she also would talk about the Sami people as if they were less than. Right. Yeah, like bigotry, bigotry is, you know, is pretty recent sort of thing, right? Yeah, and like it's one of those things, like if people are racist, that's the kind of conviction that doesn't really go away by itself. You kind of have to wait for the oldest generation to die out before. That's not to say I didn't. I loved my grandmother, but I'm Sami. So the fact that she would, you know, casually pretend that I wasn't. I'm just looking at the the map here of the the White Sea. They're not coming up the west side. They're, so they're, they're sailing up from the White Sea into the Barents Sea from the east, from the kind of northern east. Certainly what today is northern Finland? Northern Russia. Finland and, and, and Russia and... It's all Russia now. It's all Russia, okay. Yeah, I get it. So, that, I mean, that must have been like during the winter, that must have been frozen? No. No. It doesn't freeze. Really? In the winter? Yeah. No. Uh, like, one of the reasons why Norway has always been a seafaring country is because of the Gulf Stream, it doesn't freeze. Like, okay. even the northernmost ports of Norway are ice-free in the winter. But I was, so, yeah, but I'm looking, I know in northern Siberia it does, like, the sea does yeah. freeze. So by the time you get that far east, it's frozen so yes. okay, i see most of the koala peninsula does not does not freeze yeah okay of course you wouldn't raid in the winter for purposes no. of massive storm hurricanes that would have smashed boats to pieces 
summertime is the raiding time, isn't it? Summertime it is, is when you go Viking. Which also left uh, villages to a degree unprotected against these raids because all the all the menfolk had been sent away to loot and pillage elsewhere, and then these people came and looted so... and pillaged us. You know what goes around comes around. Right. So so you get so you've got you've got these these two cultures that are there, and, and the players can be from from either one of these cultures. I mean, this kind of this kind of whole campaign seems to be about the interactions there, the the commonalities there, to the the blending of the heritages that are there. I mean, you mentioned yourself that you are Sami. I'm I'm guessing that you're you're part Norwegian and part Sami as well. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think that they're going to do with this? I mean, they're are they excited about this notion of this is a home this is a hometown game? I mean, I, I I'm guessing that they're all from your area. No. Um, uh, no. There's there's two Americans and a Dane. Oh, so none of them. <laughs> I mean, they're all super excited about playing yeah. a Viking game, and it's also we got together like God five years ago. Yeah. Started playing Dungeons and Dragons because it it is the most popular <laughs> role playing game. It is it is it is, it is a com- is a common frame of reference for a lot of people. Yeah, and for some it was like their first experience, and yeah. for others not. But we've played together for many years. We've played more than one style of game, and I've been warmly talking about how Mithras is an amazing system. Nice. So. Once we finished our latest campaign, which was uh, Vampire Requiem, that's when we decided to to go for this game. Something that's very near and dear to me, so I wanted to have time to develop it and reacquaint myself with my own history, so yeah. I can run it in a satisfying way. That's cool. That's all. It's always it's always fun to do a, a campaign based on your based on your passions, right? Like you've got to. You you have a real passion there and and are driving that forward. I mean, I'm going to be running a game that's going to be in the Pacific Northwest, and that's where I'm, Pacific Northwest of North America, and that's where I'm at. Uh, and I'm pretty passionate about that. That is it. It really kind of helps drive the the quality of that game. Yeah, and I think also like as a game master or DM, you always want to cater to your group. Because part of your fun is enjoying other people's fun. Uh, but you also want to be passionate about what you're doing. Because if you're not passionate, you're not going to run for a long time. Like, you yeah. can't keep... Um, with a game... Well, in my group, a game tends to be four hours. You can't keep going back to a dry well. Like, if you're not inspired, if you're not motivated, like, sitting in a dry well for four hours every Saturday, <laughs> oof. Yeah, that's not going to be any fun. Not for me, not for them. So I was wondering about why you chose Mithras and what, you know, what's interesting about it to you. Well, I think there is a just a vast jungle of various tabletop RPGs out there. They all have good points and bad points and some you can run for a very long time and some naturally lend themselves to shorter more intense games at a certain point when uh because i've been doing this for a really long time like i've been running games for 25 years 
at a certain point, you just get tired of the, I don't like alpha male, European medieval, very white idea of what a tabletop RPG is. Yeah, Which... there's a, there's a, there's a trope in a, a genre that has been beat very hard, and and it's it's you know it's easy for people to get into, but after I mean twenty five years is pretty long time to have been running that. That seems like it would get pretty dull after a while. It does, and like that's not to say I I haven't played in in other pawns, but that is like the majority, and it's also like the entry level. If you're running with a new group, I would say. Like, D&D 5th Edition is such a good way to bring people into tabletop role-playing games. Yeah. Uh, like, I started with 2nd Edition. Um, that's, that, that's, that's a good long time ago. I I started in uh, 1979 myself with, uh, with BASIC. Well, that was the year I was born. So. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Well, yeah, I mean... I've come to accept the fact that I'm super old. <laughs> yeah, I never uh, played D&D, so I was RuneQuest in the mid-80s. Yeah, like, I did... I also played RuneQuest. Then, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I fell into the LARP pool. We played a Vampire the Masquerade LARP, which was very fun. We also did a Firefly LARP. The Vampire the Masquerade LARP ran over multiple years. And then we started making our own rule systems. Scandinavian LARPing is quite different from American LARPing. American LARPing very often, to me, resembles more of a war game than communal storytelling. And for me, the game I want is communal storytelling, much more than railroading or and that's not to say there's anything wrong with railroading like you need a little bit of railroading other otherwise your players will just it's like herding cats these like very linear games where there is a right way and a wrong way i don't like that like sometimes my players are very clever and they think of solutions that haven't crossed my mind but that's not a reason for me to be like no you haven't found the penultimate solution that's it. i mean that sounds like that sounds like you kind of you kind of like what i would call a, a sandbox game a sandbox campaign rather than uh one with a fairly defined arc and story to go along with it yeah uh, like i i tend to describe my style of game as like a guided sandbox uh, i definitely tend to have some overarching ideas about theme and uh, like mood of the game but then i tend to let most of it be player driven uh, both because i learned a long time ago that it doesn't really matter how much you plan like no plan really survives contact with the enemy in this case my players so like over planning a campaign it's just a lot of effort that you don't get a payoff for so i yeah. tend to invest most of my time in like world building and deciding on like moods and themes and then uh plopping my players into it and see what happens do you, do you think do you spend a, a fair amount of time going through your NPCs and deciding where what their what their goals are, what their aspirations? No, what, no, not at all. My like, I I tend to have like a couple of NPCs, like uh, very 
VIP NPCs, kings and chieftains and uh, rulers. And then this starting out like a city game, like the, the local chieftain, he's not a Jarl, he's under another Jarl, and his wife are quite well developed, as well as like the major traders. But I tend to go with a three-word solution, like ambitious, cheerful, dark secret. Because you never, like, sometimes I want to nudge my players into doing something and keeping my not-so-important NPCs loose allows me to, to use them in the manner I see fit when the time comes for interaction. This person, oh yeah, they can fill that role that I that needs to happen right here. Yeah. Sort of thing. And also because, like, I also have a background in, like, theater sports, which I find incredibly helpful when you're uh, DMing a game. The ability to pull stuff out of your ass is just such a benefit when you're DMing. Suddenly, they come up with this super wacky idea, and they're like... I'm going to need 10 people, a large pole, and 40 yards of rope. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, then. That's, okay. that's what we're doing. So, I mean, you've been DMing for 25 years at this point? Yes. Oh, wow. That is a long time to be doing that. I'm pretty sure I haven't been DMing for 25 years. It was a matter of necessity. <laughs> I mean, it was the early 90s, and there was one other D&D group, and it was all boys, and they didn't want to play with girls. So we just had to be our own DM. Right. And no one taught us how to do it, and we just figured it out by doing. Uh, so, Which I think is the best way to learn anything. Just throw yourself in the deep end and see what happens. I was going to ask you about magic and how you're dealing with magic. Well, none of my players have played RuneQuest or Mithras before, which makes things easier for me because they can't be like, mm, I don't think that's right. Right. So we're basing Viking magic on like the traditional folk magic of Mithras uh, and splitting it into two different things. There's rune songs and then the inscribing of runes, rune carving. For both of these, you need lore runes. That's like your your lore skill. Okay. In addition, there's spo, which is uh, divination, but that's also not a thing that my players have access to, mainly because they roll a natural one and I'm like, well, so this is what's going to happen. I, I feel that's a tool better left for me to give them vague, vague prophecies of the future. Um, right. I mean, do you see there's other there's non-player characters that are going to have more ability yes. with that? Okay, yeah. And also, like, in the South, there will be priests who have access to miracles oh, okay. and stuff like that. And so that the level of magic they've got access to there is folk magic, which they from what you said they have to carve well there are two different kinds there's seid which is rune song mm -hmm. and rune carving so you okay. can imbue an item there is a folk magic that you can sort of make like a fire blade so you could potentially mm. imbue like a sword or a spear right. with that 
and which would... would make it a permanent thing. But the person who did it okay. would have to tie up one of their magic points permanently to have it act. And then for say that is just traditional folk magic. Which is sung. Yes. I mean, is that like a bard role or a scald? How does that... No, um, it's traditionally rune carving would be a man's thing and said would be a woman's magic. Okay. But it would be like performed with a chant. You would have vulva, which were like wise women who were um, part of a community, but also separate from a community because, you know, they were powerful but also terrifying and they were my favorite growing up reading like historical fiction based on the viking era i was like that's what i'm gonna be when i grow up um i mean that's a good career aspiration is to be a vulva i suppose yeah now i'm hoping that if magic is real i'm just going to become a warlock because i'm lazy and i'm gonna cheat <laughs> uh, but this, so, um, this this isn't necessarily connected to the gods. No, like the pantheon, the Norse pantheon is quite vast, mm -hmm. but I do require the Norse character to pick like a primary god because my players are very good role players. I expect them to use their god in ways that make sense and color their their play. As I said, like, I probably would have been a lot more strict with the rules if it was a new group, but because these are all people that I know and trust, yeah, and they're all yeah. excellent role players, I don't have to put as many limitations on them as I, or requirements, as I do probably you, would have. Do your players, like, will they go out and do the, the, will they go out and do historical research or, or go and pull in other, other sources to kind of give their, give their characters some flavors, so like your your player who who may say you know is like okay thor is my primary god uh i know because i know thor is sort of the common man's god and i'm going to conform my magic to what i expect thor would like you know i'm not going to pick incognito yeah. because thor would never pick a incognito he would never grant the power of incognito no, that would be more of an odin thing yeah uh, yeah or or loki yeah or one of one of those yeah, no, I, I have full faith that all of them will try to one-up me with historical research that they've done. Like, me putting a lot of effort and work into this campaign is because there is an expectation of reciprocity from my players. They will be super hyped about playing this kind of campaign. And we've played campaigns in the past that have, like, gone on for more than a year. So two years in fact so i'm i'm expecting this to be like a long-term investment what do, what do you think it is about mithras that allows you to do a campaign like this that you couldn't do in in some other system well i think mithras does add more skills that confirms to to customs rather than just combat i mean and i mean roll 20 makes it easier too because like you can yeah. add skills until right. you're red in the face the Mithras framework is uh, very adaptable for whatever purpose. To differentiate, and I'm just going to use 5e because it's so pervasive right now. But because 5th uh, edition is so pervasive, I would say that no matter what kind of game 
you want to run with 5th edition, combat is always going to be so important. So much of the game is focused on combat, whereas with Mithras, it's easier to make a rewarding game that doesn't care as much about combat. And I also like the fact that combat is pretty much always lethal in Mithras. Like, it should be avoided. You should look for other solutions. The combat system in Mithras is one of the most detailed parts of the game, but one of the consequences of it is that people generally are very reluctant to get into any situation where they're put into put into combat. In general, I would say, like it's always dangerous. It's always very risky. And I feel that makes it uh, feel realer. Yeah. And I, my players will tell you, I'm all about like immersion. Okay. I I want to see my players lose themselves in their character for the four hours that we play. And the more vibrant and real your character and the world that you're playing in feels, the more storytelling can be done. Can you say, so you talked a little bit, in terms of the magic, you talked about rune songs, divination, and rune carving. On the animism side, what are you doing with that? Or Yeah, so the Sami, uh, like holy people, shamans, if you will, uh, are the Nuaiti. Yeah, they believe that everything has a spirit, everything has a soul. Uh, there is large ancestor worship, and they also have these, drums which is kind of like the most important symbol of anuidi and they these drums are often carved with like ornate symbolism referring to ancestors and the history of and also magic symbols so we're going to use the drums as the fetish that you can bind things to are you going to require the drums to to use trance or yeah, so there will be trancing to enter the spirit world. Like, I don't need to make things complicated for the sake of making them complicated. So we're just going to use the base skills. Like, there's trance, binding, lore spirits. These are the things you need yeah. in order to be annoyed. Yeah. Straight lifting. Like, they did it so well. I don't see a need to amend it further. The changes I'm making are more flavor change changes. Hmm. Uh, so there's quite a lot of ancestor spirits, uh, animal spirits, elementals. But for the darker side, like if you wanted to get like a death spirit at any point in time, uh, that would require more effort. So I'm changing the spirit tables and removing a lot of stuff because they would have to specifically seek that out. It's not by random happenstance you manage to get like a black mamba death spirit. <laughs> Yeah. Are most of the spirits then going to be ancestor spirits that you that you know or that you get to know? Yeah, quite a lot of ancestor spirits, animal spirits are also very common. Uh, like the traditional Sami were reindeer herders. So like yeah. the, the reindeer has a very strong place in their mythology and so you, the bear as well. Right. So you'd call what you call maybe reindeer and bear, wolf. Yes. Oh, I suppose maybe seals, that kind of thing. So sea animals. Yeah, as well. seals, whales, yeah. things that can be beneficial if they decide to go the let's go Viking seafaring. Yeah. <laughs> and are these spirits like in terms of your relationship with the spirits? Would you 
would you bind them to your drum then is that the idea or would they or it, like what is the spirit world like and do sami have fetishes like in the do the spirits live in the drum is or not how does that work no like the spirits live in the spirit realm okay so uh you can contact them through nature or your drum using it to enter a trance and then calling a spirit to aid you in whatever endeavor you are pursuing so it's not going to be an instantaneous action you could potentially summon a reindeer or a bear or a wolf and keep them with you for the adventuring day or to help you keep watch in the night but it's not something that you can do as an action in combat because i'm a horrible person (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and i realized how incredibly broken it is yeah. <laughs> thank you bill yeah it can be yeah <laughs> so yeah you're more like i suppose that's more like the mythic britain treatment of of spirits yeah right, yeah okay it just tastes more real and i don't want magic to be like automatic win I I want magic to be more insidious, just something that seeps into so many things that you do in your daily life. It's a tool, but it's not the be-all, end-all. Extending that, what's the role of the supernatural or like outside of spirits? Oh, huge. Like the the Sami gods, as well as the Norse gods, both have received large treaties from me there is a massive document that is available to my players i have cut it down into nice handy chunks for each separate god but there's plenty of lore relating to to all of the various deities they all have like we were talking earlier about npcs and ambitions and stuff like that whereas a lot of people tend to be in the go with the flow what what does Kristen need to use me for the gods definitely have plans. So so, so they, they act in the world. Yes. And they're also aware that their worship is diminishing and uh, they have something to say about that. So they're going to be an active presence in the in the campaign. Yeah. I mean the gods are handy in that they're a way for me to direct my players forward. Because right. if I have one criticism about pure sandbox games is that if everything is a possibility and everything is open, uh, players often get paralyzed. Yeah. They're like, yeah. uh, I don't know what, what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, what should I be doing here, right? It's So uh, with making the gods an active presence, I can like give them visions or, you know, Whatever. whatever i need them to do whenever they get stuck i'm like so hey this is for calling i see what you've been doing really really great excellent stuff um i was wondering if you could pillage a village for me i just i have this image now of uh thor coming by my cubicle with a coffee cup <laughs> and saying yeah you think you could i'm gonna need you coming on saturday <laughs> to pillage a village for me i appreciate that, that character Thanks. is now thor to me right. <laughs> <laughs> very good well, I have been perfecting my evil laugh over many years of DMing. Yeah, I probably wouldn't phrase it like that in the game, but for this purposes, it seems appropriate. <laughs> so, do you so do you like publish your campaign notes or or your campaign material online or anything like that so that people can see where you're going with it? No, I generally don't take a lot of notes 
during play. I require my players to recap at the beginning of every session. They take notes. I tend to overinvest in prep. Like do, yeah, I've done like in this campaign, probably between three and 500 hours of prep. Wow. That's a, so have you considered writing a book? Yes. Um, have you, have you proposed a book? I mean, like it's, it seems like you're, you're well on your way to uh, mythic Sami here. Yeah. Uh, I, I have pondered maybe writing a setting, but oh, I'm just very lazy. I, I want the instant gratification of putting my players through the ringer. But it's definitely something to think about for the future. I have collaborated on like Norwegian role-playing things, modules in the past. Yeah. Um, so it's not something I'm completely unfamiliar with. But I tend to think that preparation is key for running a smooth campaign. And I don't tend to think about plot to an extensive degree i feel like world building is the most important thing i do as a dm uh because that is the basis of of any campaign once the the players feel confident in the rules and cohesiveness of the world you can sort of let them run the show so so for for this game i mean who's in who's in opposition for them with them is it is it going to do you think it's going to be the south do you, well, think it is, do you think it is going to turn into holy war norse faith and sami faith versus catholicism or that's definitely an option another option could be that they focus on more local politics uh like there's a chieftain on pretty much every island and i'm in the north of norway so there's a massive amount of islands maybe they want to develop their own piddling village into a massive power center there's also like a, a mythic supernatural element that the gods want them to achieve which is to go to the norns and change the weave of faith and they reside at the bottom of the well uh, that is uh, underneath the tree of the worlds so uh, it sort of depends what scope the, the players set for themselves. Um, like in the beginning, it will probably be like a bit of politicking. And then we will come to a crossroads where they have to decide, are we going to go for straight up national politics? Or are we going to bring the Viking gods, the Norse gods firmly into the world of man by changing the weave of faith? Both of these things are an option available to them. Or maybe they'll decide to do both. We shall it kind, of, you know, it kind of sounds like they get to pick which, what kind of campaign do we want here? We Do we want a, a really grounded campaign, a real, really realistic campaign? Like, yeah, 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 faith, whatever. Or, no, we're going to embrace this whole faith thing. And these people, the people of the world are really just sort of pawns for whatever the faith comes out of it or, or something else entirely. That's kind of what I'm going for. I, I always try to let my players decide what kind of campaign they want to play. These are players that I know fairly well, but they tend to want to either do large-scale politics or world-ending epicness. So I kind of have uh, both options available to them. Uh, and because I'm thinking of this in terms of like a long-term campaign, running two to five years, I don't see why they wouldn't do both at a certain point in time. Yeah, and blending them together in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they like to blur the lines. Like, it sounds like they might go into a spirit world of some kind, or... Oh, God, I hope so. <laughs> 
because you because you've mapped it all out how would you handle that or like what would change then moving from the mundane middle world into somewhere else moving into the spirit world is of course incredibly dangerous because suddenly you're in a world where the rules are completely different from what you're accustomed to and pretty much everything there could kill you if it really wanted to uh, you're also incredibly vulnerable i'm doing the whole your physical bodies are left behind oh, okay yeah so you are opening yourself up uh to any sort of attack or ambush in the real world would kill you because you can't defend yourself you're you're probably unaware in fact of anything that's going on Yes. Uh, and also, if you die in the spirit world, all that remains is like a husk of a human being. It also depends on whether or not my players have pleased me in their offerings. <laughs> I can be capricious like that. And it, it would yeah, be... Now, do, do, they, do they need to like send you some herring or something like that? Or, or an offering <laughs> of reindeer meat or something? Is that? I mean, I wouldn't object to it. Does, does this have any parallels in the sagas or myths? The offerings to her, or or the the campaign itself. I mean, tra uh, traveling oh. <laughs> traveling into one of the other worlds of the Norse. Yeah, uh, in, in Sami mythology, achieving a trans state and going into the spirit world is basically what being a shaman or Noite is all about. Like having. Have, like ascended to that level of connection slash clarity and then for the vikings because the viking wise women were like shrouded in a layer of separation between there's not so much written down about them and what is written down tends to be more like the effect of what they did rather than how they did it which allows me to just take a lot of liberties with it i'm gonna say that they need to trans and enter the spirit world in order to negotiate with spirits for favor. And this includes, does this include their journey to the Norns, this kind of thing? Yes. Okay. So ev everyone needs to, to trance in order to cross into, I think it's more like the, the gray space between worlds. That's how I'm thinking about it. Oh, okay. But it's also, um, these things aren't really set in stone. Um, at least not for me. Sometimes my players will tell a story by themselves and it's just such a good story. And they will have theories about how things work and I'll be like, holy shit, that's way better than how I thought things yeah. would work. <laughs> that's yeah. how things work now. Yeah, G generally the like uh, players are going to come up with better ideas than you had and you just change things to fit that. Oh, for sure. We didn't talk about any sources. Oh, sources. Yeah. So do you want yeah, to... Like your... This is my local history, which is, you know, a big source for me going outside, looking around. Hmm. Um, so I have used a couple of, like, archaeology reports and findings that hmm. refer to my immediate local area. Uh, and, like, I really enjoyed the Viking mythos from early childhood. Like, the Norse stories were so cool, and the Pantheon was so cool. Um, so it's something I've been interested in since I, since I was a wee girl, a wee lass. But I did read a couple of things specifically before running this game. I didn't listen to any podcasts, but uh, I did read uh, The Age of the Vikings 
by Anna Schwindel. Thought that was really good. And Viking Age, Everyday Life During the Extraordinary Era of the Norsemen by uh, Kristen Wolf. Valkyrie, The Woman of the Viking World, which I read on your recommendation. So I enjoyed that as well. And then there's, of course, the like historical sources like the sagas, the Eddas, Hovamol. And just looking up a lot of source material that's freely available on the internet, like the various laws from that time. There's a lot of web pages that give you really good background material to work with. A lot of the museums will have really comprehensive material that's really easy to read and understand for a layperson. I've always been a fan of the sagas for this sort of thing. They're I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a moment and give a shout out to another podcast that I listen to, the Saga Thing podcast. If you like this sort of business uh, with with fan, with 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 uh, Norse families and and their interactions and their politics, that one mostly is going over the Icelandic family sagas. But it is it is a material that is ripe for ripping for campaigns, and there is all sorts of stuff like you could make a campaign out of stealing sheep or horses from the next farmstead over because there's so much interesting drama that goes on behind the scenes, so much family interactions, that sort of thing. I I would say, like, the one bad thing about the sagas is that the language can be quite dense and off-putting. Like, I wish we would have sagas rewritten in in the way that the new Beowulf is written, um, (laughs) where... It's translated into, uh, like, our way of speaking. Because they don't shy away from anything. Like, it's basically like a K-drama. There's, like, scheming evil stepmothers and the slavery, the selling of children, uh, infidelity, uh, just complicated layers of lying and stealing and trying to one-up each other. There's even one where a guy spreads manure on his face, hoping that he will grow a beard. So, because being I mean, that's just, that's just science. I mean, that's, that's how I <laughs> yeah. got my beard, is I did, you know, just a little bit of manure here and there and comes right in. So, um, I wish they were more accessible. Yeah. There's, there's some that are, there's, there's some that are a little bit easier to read than others. Some of them have not had a translation in more than a hundred years. And, uh, yeah, and a lot of the translation date back till the 1930s, 1950s, um, and very respectfully. Like we need a translation that's not respectful at all. That's like just straight talk where people say fuck off to each other instead of being like, the dawn has not greeted you well this morn. <laughs> like, what does that even mean? Like, <laughs> yes, at the time it was an insult, but like to us it sounds like poetry. That doesn't sound bad at all. A straight like fuck off would make more sense. Or, or maybe we can we can insert some other some other modern metaphor that would be understood to mean, you know, fuck off in some way. Yeah, or <laughs> like, just give me a straight-talking uh, saga where the language is... Because I think, like, I had to read them in school, but even now they're, like, removing more and more of them from school because they are so dense, because they are so hard to motivate a 12-year-old to read. And especially with language evolving over time, 
like even now it's more dense, more um, indigestible than it was for me when I was in school 30 years ago. I have a, I have a 10 year old boy and I am a giant Norse culture fan and I would consider it abusive to try and make him read some of these sagas. Like, they're just not... Like, he's going to be bored out of his mind. I can't even imagine making a 12-year-old doing that, do that. It would be... Oh, my gosh. Why would you do that? Like, it's just a matter of, like, television. Like, seeing the the programs that I grew up with, and I thought, like, oh, this is an excellent show at 10, 12, and then seeing yeah. what... My nephews are watching i'm like those things that i watched are like so dull in comparison with with what they're watching now generations change the yeah. culture changes and if you put history on this impenetrable pedestal then it's going to get lost over time and it's our responsibility to um <laughs> yeah. to make it uh something that the next generation can also learn from yeah i mean the enjoy. yeah the 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 point about that i mean the the beowulf translation that i mean that word bro um <laughs> I, <laughs> I read so i read about it i read about the translation and you know it, there is a word it is anglo-saxon isn't it beowulf is written in anglo-saxon is that correct mm -hmm. i think so yeah there is no translation for that word i can't remember what it is it's hw I think it's HWT or something something like that. And there's no modern equivalent of that word. But it's some kind of call. You know, it's a call to attention. And we don't have... There's not a word in English that adequately expresses that. So, Well, in that case, I would say bro is probably better than yo. Ex yeah, exactly. No, it is. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, if that's not appropriate, then what is? Because we don't have a word that, that's representative of that, of that <laughs> Anglo-Saxon word, you know. If you're going to translate it, I mean, of course, you could just say it's just not worth translating, I'm not doing it. Then you've got to find, you know, some something equivalent that, that actually has the same kind of impact. The more accessible history is, the more enjoyable it is. Like, mm. I know, like, in preparation for this, I plowed through a lot of uh, historical information. Not all of it is translated. So when you sit there with, like, a dictionary in one hand and try to unwrap what this... And it was... Uh, especially in the quads, which are like the, the poems, because the sagas have all been translated, but right. the quads have not. So you're reading in uh, Old Norse? Yeah, with the dictionary and pen and paper and trying to unravel, because a lot of the quads are referred to like the lesser chieftains that were in this area, because a very oh. famous poet was from here, but not all of his writing has been translated. So whenever a word caught my attention, I'm like, oh, shit. I have to translate this. It hasn't even been translated into modern Norwegian. No. This is the this is the trials and tribulations of a GM in the modern world, <laughs> where we're forced to have so many dictionaries for so many languages available to us at a moment's notice. Yeah. The other thing is there's so much available. Like there's so many texts that you can get access to. Um, it's true. Yeah. You really can. That's why Mythic Greece has taken ten years to write because. <laughs> The longer you wait, the more stuff that's being published. That's that's the other so thing. I, I assume that what really what happened there was that it would have only taken five years, except that half of the year it's dark in where <laughs> he's at, and he can't see to write. 
Wow. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you're, you're up there at his latitude, I think. Oh, so much very, further very, north. Yeah, further very, north. Very close, right, right around there. I mean, we have electricity. I'm not sure if you're aware. <laughs> well, he was, he was talking about how annoyed he was that uh, the Swedes yes. just have a hundred lights and keep them on all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, during the winter. That's something that's difficult to get used to if you're, certainly if you're from the... Oh, US. yeah. No, we don't save power at all. Yeah. Like, we're awful at that. But yeah. since Norway is mainly run on uh, hydropower, yeah. Yeah. we're like, no, we have waterfalls coming out our ass. We're fine. Half the, half the country is mountains. Like, waterfalls, not an issue. I'm, I'm really upset about uh, the Greece Oh, uh, mainly because I've enjoyed all their other material to a large extent. Yeah, yeah. But Greece is just one of those that's so blah to me because it's been covered to death so many times, and I'm just like, oh, how about something's set in like the Far East, China? Well, that would be super interesting. I mean, so they're going to do Polynesia, right? And mm-hmm. they've been passing around mm-hmm. India. Well, in Babylon, I mean, and Babylon's yeah. on its way. The Greece one is going to be Bronze Age, so it's Mycenae Greece. So that might be quite interesting. Quite an interesting take. I've read quite a bit about Crete. My, uh, I have a my the G guy who who G who's currently GMing for my group, and I'm probably going to co-opt him through into more or less permanent GM stuff because I think he does a better job than I do. <laughs> he is a giant fan of the Sea Peoples and of, uh, of Mycenae Greece. Yeah. And so I'm going to say, hey, you know, you need to do one of these and your long-awaited Anabasis campaign. Oh, I would okay. be so. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna bait him into that. I'm I'm not even gonna be shy about it. I did, I really want like something set in uh, Korea, Japan, <laughs> China. Look, I've been watching a lot of historical ancient dramas lately. Your K, your K dramas uh, yeah. is what you mentioned there. You know, spe- speaking speaking of age, my mother-in-law watches K dramas. So I mean, she's a good person. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell her. I will tell her that a, that a, that a, a, a Sami woman in Norway watches K dramas too, and that's close to her heart. There. Yeah, I I feel bad for Bill because the other uh, the other day when we were playing in our game, me and the other female player in our group started a rather long and rambling conversation about Chinese web novels. Yeah. Also suggested starting a book club. <laughs> yeah. With a, the bo- group. a book club. Maybe we don't talk about Chinese web novels though, because I mean what I this is me. I don't know what they're like. But from the sound of it, it didn't sound too good, I have to say. They're incredibly entertaining. That's I, 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 you can so you can go and look on the Mithras boards, and I am I am all on board with the, with a mythic China of literally any time period. I'm, you know, I would love a Romance of the Three Kingdoms thing, which frankly I looked around is not really as done as well as you might like. There's a lot of periods to hit up on in there. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And also, a lot of people are like, oh, Greece, Rome, that's the cradle of civilization. And I'm like, like, Asia was like on top of shit while we were still, <laughs> you know, clashing two pieces of flint together, wondering why there was no fire yet. 
I am quite interested in the Babylon project because it connects or in theory, like if you look at the same time, then you're going from East Africa, the Middle East, Arabia, India, mm-hmm. Asia, like all those places all connected at the same time, you know, X 2000 BC or something. Yeah, there's potentially all of that. But yeah, people tend not to look further east than the Middle East. I mean, doing something like, I mean, it's not just a lack of familiarity that's there. I mean, in trying to do a China thing is trying to eat a very big elephant, right? I mean, it's, mm. it is, there's is so much history there that, you know, thousands of years of history before we even get to the part that we deal with in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, or, or India where, you know, there's, there's just de- so much depth and so many cultures that are all over the place or, you know, very obscure ones. I mean, not many people knew anything about Korean history until relatively recently and people, you know, shows started showing up on Netflix. Um, you know everybody know everybody knows you know the tokugawa period of of japan but there's a whole lot of it before that that we don't even talk about yeah and i I think that is an issue in um tabletop games that we tend to go back to the same well every time to drink and that well is overwhelmingly white and also we've definitely gotten better at the whole uh women are people too um than we were in that time when you started playing. I will not take no. responsibility because I was an infant. <laughs> um, like, I've been a DM for many, many years. And just when I started out DMing, there would be quite a lot of, like, sexism mm. in oh, yeah. in role-playing games where the, the abuse of women was like yeah, a yeah. plot point. Yeah. But um, I think I think yeah, I think I think that particular period was uh was dark. especially ripe with it. Right. It, yeah. was, it was it was especially common then. And I I do think that that is a problem. So many of these games are uh focused on a western audience because I truly believe that role playing games have the power to bring people together to cross cultures and religion and make everyone sit down at the table and have a good time and tell a story together. But as long as it's so heavily European, medieval, white, it becomes a barrier for other people who want to get into the hobby. I, I'm, I, you know, I think, I think things like, you know, Polynesia and, and mythic Polynesia and mythic Britain are not mythic Britain, but myth and Babylon are going to help change that babylon has been done a bit and people kind of have an idea of how it looks Mm -hmm. Uh, but polynesia i think is i'm not sure that it's ever gotten a really good treatment in any 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 system any publisher i'm i'm really looking forward to seeing how that one changes the way it looks in our monster island game i feel like bill has included a lot of like Polynesian islander culture elements into it yeah i mean there's a lot of that there already yeah it's kind of it's kind of an interesting blend of polynesian and mayan and aztec you know even philippine yeah yeah just kind of all all spread across there all ever it it almost seems like pete pulled together uh said okay what don't people talk about in in role-playing games i'm gonna throw that one in there and it makes it look really alien yeah but in fact many of those things are real world myth the lakuma that is the like the grabbing hand thing that's like from the 
it's from somewhere in South America. I was like, I never even heard of that. Yeah. No, I mean, I think part of the part of the issue is just is the familiarity with the fiction. You know, one of the reasons why fantasy is is how it is is because of the, especially in terms of games, is because the the fiction uses all those well trodden settings and themes and characters, and there's there's this less less popular fiction you'd say i mean if you look at lord of the rings and you look Mm -hmm. at game of thrones they're not the same but they're drawing from similar uh, historical and fictional sources i've got i mean lord of the rings very directly but you know i but i can remember the water margin and monkey from 70s you know hong kong television production i think monkey was made in japan but it's about the it's a chinese chinese indian story when i'm Say monkey, I'm talking about the seventies Hong Kong production. I mean it was all it was ridiculous. It was it was a joke. Like the whole thing was a comedy, I mean. Whereas the I mean the water margin was was actually quite serious, like a more of a serious production. It wasn't it wasn't cartoony. But but you can see is like those little things are then picked up in or they become part of the kind of popular culture consciousness. Whereas, for instance, you could ask, well, where's Philippine fantasy fiction? And it's not very well known in the West. Whereas you like the Five Kingdom stuff is quite well known, like it is represented a, a bit in in games in the West. It has a lot to do with, you know, what fiction is being produced, what's familiar and what's popular. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but most like most of what I see in games and role playing games is almost always derived from other fictional forms. And, uh... and even when there are new games, very often like uh, the Dresden Files bought their own role playing game. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer spawned yeah. its own role playing game. Firefly spawned its. Yes. <laughs> so like very often when there are new games, they draw from like one or more novels or sources of fiction because they're not about world building they're like taking an established world and then making you or letting you play in it and for fans of firefly who are cruelly robbed by fox (laughs) that is alluring to be able to go back and drink from that well again but i often feel that the best systems are systems like mithras which come with a solid framework and you can put it in any setting you could Mm. possibly imagine. If the system is solid enough, if the system is diverse enough, then it it will work pretty much no matter what. And I think that is like the strength of the D100 RuneQuest Mithras legacy. Is, is how pliable and shapeable Mm. it is. Yep, and there's a very simple concept of, okay, what do you want to do? There is a chance for that to happen. We're going to label what you wanted to do with that with that percent chance that it's going to happen. Done. That's the that's the core mechanic of it, and and that makes it very very easy to add stuff in as you need it to maneuver it around however you want your game to go. Yeah, and there's a couple of core mechanics that are common in role-playing games. Like, you you have the World of Darkness, where you roll based on how many points you have, yeah. uh, which is a more random and arbitrary way of rolling. And then you have 5th edition, which is, like, it's just a, the same system. It's just instead of rolling a D100, you're rolling a D20. But the base mechanics of it is the same. They've just reversed, like, neg- small numbers are bad, big numbers are good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, effectively, RuneQuest and Mithras uh, more or less is a, is a D&D hack. Mm-hmm. Um, no levels and no strict classes. 
Kristen, it was excellent talking to you. I, I, I've, I know that I've really enjoyed it, and I know Bill has enjoyed it. I've listened to him. Uh, this is, it's been really, really fun having a, having this conversation with you. I am super excited to hear more about your game. Will, will, would you please come back? We'd love it. I would be happy to attend to whatever you want me to talk about. Awesome. Thank you very much. Christine. All right. Well, Thanks thank for having me. Thank you very much. All right. has been profound. I can come back and we can talk about uh, women's role in games yeah. and also in a way. Like, these are you know, all...